tell by, sorry, too many things going on. As you can probably tell by this, we are in a new series in the book of Exodus. Um, so far, I have really enjoyed studying this um, throughout this series. So Exodus, we'll just get it all out there. Exodus is a long book. There's a lot going on. And we just will not be able to address all of that. Um, if you've been with us for any period of time, you know that we are not the like verse by verse church. So we will not spend five years going throughout the book of Exodus verse by verse. Um, but we're going to do our best to hit some of the big stories and what is happening throughout this book. Um, as I said, like, obviously, I won't be able to, to hit on everything, but we have some other resources throughout the series that we will send out to you. Um, be it through Instagram or email. And those are some podcasts, there's some books, and, and many of those things are actually pretty easy ways to get another feel for what's happening um, and that are that are somewhat easy for anyone to understand, not to disparage you um, and your intellect. Um, but one of them is my favorite. It's called Exodus for Normal People. Uh, I actually categorize myself as a normal people in this conversation. I'm by no means a scholar or an academician which maybe I didn't even say that word right by betraying my intelligence there. Um, there's a lot going on in this book. I'm really excited to spend at minimum about eight weeks in this book. Um, if you don't know anything about the book of Exodus, it is more or less broken up into two parts. The, the first part uh, is primarily a narrative. It revolves a lot around the person of Moses uh, and the liberation of the people of Israel out of Egypt um, into essentially the wilderness. And then the second part uh, is a lot of law and a lot of what God is giving the people of Israel to, for them to be able to live with one another and for them to be able to, to worship God. So a lot of what's happening is, is found in these two parts. Over the next eight weeks, we'll, we'll focus on this first part. It'll be primarily narrative and things that are happening within the story. Um, now, the first thing that I think is necessary when going into any book of the Bible is to understand a little bit about the, the history and the context of what's happening. Unfortunately, Exodus is pretty complicated when we're talking about this type of thing. Exodus is more than likely 3,000 year old, years old. So we're pretty removed from when it was written, the context surrounding it. And obviously, the way that they would write things down, the way they would pass things down back then is very different than how we would do it right now. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Exodus is, is not as clear as some books in the New Testament when we might look at the Gospel of Luke. And it's very obvious that Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. We have very clear uh, authorship and date and things like that. Many books in the Old Testament, Exodus being one of them, aren't quite the same way. If you maybe heard that Moses was the author of Exodus, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. That's not entirely true. Um, but ultimately what's happening in Exodus is we have four primary sources, and these are the primary sources. There's these four documents, this priestly document, a holiness document, a Yahwist, and an Elohist. So these are not also unique to Exodus. We have many books in the Old Testament that are pulling from these four primary sources. And also what's happening throughout the years is you often will have some kind of editor, usually a priest or someone like that, that's going throughout all of these sources and, and slowly editing and compiling all of these 
stories and all of these laws and everything to, to get to the book that we now have as Exodus. Now, again, remember many of these stories, especially here in this book, are thousands and thousands of years old. Some of the earliest times that we have of when something was written down was around the year 1200 BC. So even then, we're stocking nearly 3,000 years. And at that point of inscription and trying to write down some of this, there are even hundreds and hundreds of years removed from these stories that are happening. So as we talk about this, this is an important background and, and understanding of what's happening in the book of Exodus. As far as historicity, what we mean when we talk about a, a historicity is, did this thing historically happen? Are we looking at this as if it was a true historical event? And how does that interpret the way that we go to this story? And how does that impact the way that we read this story? Again, when we're talking about a book of Exodus, the historicity is somewhat complicated because obviously they're writing very differently than we would write history. Several things that are happening to focus on is something that can be historical. So like, for example, the war, World War II, this is something that is historical. We can look back and we see the historical events, but simultaneously, we might not look back and see some kind of truth emanating out of those events. Whereas you can look at something like the Lord of the Rings. Has anybody ever read or watched the movies, the Lord of the Rings? Not to burst your bubble again, but these are not historical. They did not really actually happen. However, despite being non-historical, there's still a lot of truth that can be conveyed through the story. Said as simply as I, I can try to say, historicity does not equate to truth. So just because something historically happened, that doesn't mean that there's necessarily something there for us to glean out of that. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, similarly, a story can put, take place in a historical concept without it necessarily being true. For example, I imagine some of you have seen some Marvel movies or Captain America. Malcolm's seen Captain America. Perfect. Captain America, again, don't want to burst your bubble, is not a historical person. However, the story takes place in a historical context. It's in World War II. There's many things that are happening that are historical, but the story takes place in a historical concept. The story of Exodus is, is not unlike some of these things. Oftentimes, a category or a genre that's given to the book of Exodus would be called a mythologized history. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but you have gone through something and now you're telling your friends and you exaggerate the story a little bit. You add some hyperbole of, well, the fish I caught while it was actually this big was maybe this big. And as the years progress, that fish gets bigger and bigger. Some of what's happening in, in Exodus is this. It's a mythologized history. While that might feel uncomfortable to us, that's very normal to what was happening in ancient Near Eastern culture. The book of Exodus is very consistent with how things were written back then. And so all of this to help us get to this point to where there's certainly important things and questions to ask about the book of Exodus and the, the history of Exodus. But I would say this is probably the clearest way that we can talk about it. This is a theologian, his name is Pete Enns, and I'll reference him a lot throughout this series. Uh, he has the commentary, the NIV application commentary. He has a lot of other things. And this is what he says about the book of Exodus and its historicity. 
It's often simply stated that if the Bible says something happened, sorry, it's often simply stated that if what the Bible says happened did not happen, then the true claims of the Bible are rendered suspect and we have little reason to trust it. Defense of the Bible's historicity is, of course, important, but it's not the goal of biblical interpretation. To use an obviously relevant example, we have not understood the book of Exodus when you have successfully defended the historicity of the events of Exodus. There's more to interpreting the book than demonstrating that this or that happened. And this is, I would say, a very important piece of what we're talking about within the book of Exodus. This is not to say these things did not happen or did happen, but rather there's something bigger going on in this story. And ultimately, the story of Exodus is the story of God coming to his people and his people learning about God and us learning about God. And these are the surrounding events and context that happen around it, around it. Exodus is one of the books that is a marquee part of the Bible. We look back and we often have a theological history. This is much of what's happening for Jews when they are looking back. They are looking back at the ways that God delivered them, and they're looking back on their history, but they're also looking back on it with a theological lens, meaning they're looking back and they're seeing how God was there and how God provided and was there with them and for them. So Exodus is a theological history as well. The book of Exodus has been a key part of our Bible for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It's the way that many people have understood God. One of the key theologies that we have out of the book of Exodus is a, a black liberation theology. And this idea that the primary way that God works and interacts with his people is through liberation, is through freedom, is coming to those who are poor and those who are oppressed and coming to liberate them. And the book of Exodus is the key place that that is drawn out of. Exodus, like many other books in the Old Testament, we see that God has a special disposition for those who are on the margins, those who are poor and those who are oppressed. And Exodus is the very first place that we see this happening and unfolding. Now that likely felt long. It felt long to me, but that is a lot of information condensed in a, in a fairly small amount of time. Certainly I did not encapsulate everything that's happening in Exodus. If you are interested in the Bible or history, I would encourage you to check out the historicity and what is happening in Exodus. It is fascinating to learn about these stories, how they've been transmitted, and, and how we got them into the Bible to what we know right now. Um, what we will do today is I will put passages on the screen, and I will kind of read through them and make some comments here and there, stopping at a few different places. We'll get through two chapters, which... Sounds like a lot, because it is a lot. Um, but we'll start in Exodus 1, starting in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, the first thing I want to point out here is in verse 7, with this laser. It says, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. Part of what's happening throughout the book of Exodus is we're seeing a lot of creation themes 
in the book as well. If you think back to Genesis 1, God has created Adam and Eve, and he tells them to what? Go out and to be fruitful and to multiply. That's what we would call the, the creation mandate. And Israel, the people of Israel have done exactly that. They've been faithful to that command to the point to where it says the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly. So Exodus is not only the story about Israel's people, but it's a recapitulation of creation and what's happening. You think about Genesis and Genesis 1, about the creation of the world. Exodus is very much a story about the creation of God's people as that continues to move forward. And now you see that there's a new king who Joseph meant nothing. This is how the NIV renders it, whether it's truly he didn't care about Joseph or that he just did not remember Joseph. We now have this point to where there's a new king, a new pharaoh, and he is concerned about the Israelites because they have multiplied and they have been fruitful. And so he sets out on this over the course of a few verses to devise these plans to begin to control them. It starts with a draft labor, and then it gets to an enforced labor, labor and slavery. And then it gets to the point of genocide where he starts to try and secretly kill all of the babies and all of the baby boys being born. And then it gets to the point to where it's an all-out edict from him of killing all of the baby boys that are born. And so now Israel is very much under threats, despite the fact that they have been fruitful and multiplied, and as best we can tell, have been faithful to this creation mandate, Israel still is very much under threat. And so we get to the point of the story where we're introduced to some of these characters that actually have names. We'll read this here now, first in verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you're helping the Hebrew woman during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now you can see how this drama very quickly escalates of Joseph has been forgotten to the point to where now the edict is that every Hebrew boy born must be thrown into the Nile. Now the first thing that's important to notice here is that the king of Egypt is actually not given a name. He's not given a name, but two midwives, two Hebrew women are given names. Now names were obviously incredibly important back then. And to omit the name for the most powerful person in the world is quite a subversive act by the writer and the editors of Exodus. What we see, too, is these Hebrew midwives and the subversion of the power and the oppression that they execute on behalf of the people of, of God. 
They're subverting the power of Pharaoh by allowing him to remain nameless and by not allowing his edicts to dictate the way that they are going about their birth and their life. This is in and of itself bold because it leaves Pharaoh nameless and it gives these names to these midwives. Midwives. It's an incredible act of subversion, an incredible act of subverting the power of Pharaoh who is scared and by that fear and anxiety extends it through death and oppression. This is the way that we are seeing the people of God being protected through the subversion of the midwives. This is why this book is filled with stories of liberation and stories of freedom. Because it's people who are oppressed who are not crumbling and coming underneath the power and subverting those powers. Now, for some of us, it might be hard to, to justify this act of lying. We look at other places in the Bible and we see that, that lying is not something that God wants from us. But for someone like me, I've never been in this position. I've never been in a place where a justice system doesn't work for me. I've always assumed that I can be truthful and then everything will work out for me. There's always someone I can go to that can help me. <laughs> but for these midwives and for the people of God, there is no one there for them. There is no court of law. There is no mechanism of justice. There's nothing there. And so their subversion is the way that they can bring about justness and rightness into the world in the midst of incredible oppression and slavery. And so this is the first place that we see this beautiful working out of God bringing his people through small acts of subversion, small acts of protest. And now we get to the main character of the book. We get to Moses. Now, a man of a tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. Now, the first thing that the author is doing here is revealing to you that Moses is also going to have some priestly duties. The Levites were the priests of Israel. So Moses is not just going to be a leader for Egypt, but also a, a priest on their behalf as well. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, so this fine child, this word here is actually the word tov, the Hebrew word tov, which is um, the same as what we get in the, the creation story when God looks and he sees that the world and everything that he's made is good. This is the word tov and good. So again, we're getting these allusions to the creation story. So when she saw that, that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Now, also what's happening here is we're seeing Moses being compared to the person of Noah. Think about Moses and Noah. Noah, it goes into an ark and is saved from a watery death because of the ark. And Moses is now placed in this basket and saved from a watery death in the Nile because of this basket. So again, we're having connections to different pieces to, to spark the imagination of the reader of who is this Moses and what is happening. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. 
She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, this story of Moses is a very similar story that we get in other ancient Near Eastern stories about heroes or protagonists that are happening. A story of someone who can survive the throes of death. And this birth of Moses is very much something that's happening that's consistent within their cultural context, but also giving the reader an imagination for what God is going to do and how Moses is going to be. More from Pete Ann's about what he says about these, this type of interaction with Moses. What we do have is a presentation of history that is firmly at home in the literary conventions of the ancient world. We must take great care not to allow our, our modern conventions of what constitutes history or story to color our understanding of biblical text. It's not just with obvious examples, creation, flood, Moses' birth, that we see biblical writers following literary conventions of their day. The Old Testament as a whole is a literary production of the ancient world. The story of the birth of Moses is not unique in the ancient Near Eastern world. Rather, it is stories such as this that bring us face to face with what it is, what is in fact characteristic of the Old Testament as a whole. Again, these stories are, are written specific in their context <laughs> in a way that we have trouble understanding because we don't live in ancient Near Eastern cultures. The story that's unfolding is this beautiful picture of God coming to his people and providing them a person like Moses to bring them out of slavery. Over the next few weeks, we'll hear more about what that looks like and the struggles that Moses himself has in this journey. But the birth of Moses here, it continues to keep with a recreation theme that we have in chapter one. That Genesis one is this place where God has come and he's created the world. And now Exodus is this place where God is coming and creating his people. And this goes on to say this. The birth of Moses, in keeping with the recreation theme in chapter one, is not merely about the birth of one man. It represents the birth of a people. The Savior of God's people is born, and through him they will receive a new beginning. Their slavery will end with their Savior, and their Savior will bring them safely into the rest, the promised land. And so now this is what we have for the birth of Moses and this person that we will follow throughout the remainder of the book of Exodus. The very next story that we get here that we won't give attention to is when Moses comes across uh, to Israelite, he comes across an Israelite who's being beaten by an Egyptian, and then he kills the Egyptian. And he feels great shame about that. And the next day, he goes out and he sees two Israelites arguing, and they come and their rebuttal to Moses is, "Are you going to kill us as well?" And this story, this small interaction, is again another indication of what's happening, not only here in the story, but what's going to happen with Moses and the people of Israel. 
one of the first interactions that he has with the people of Israel is one of a rebellion against his authority and his leadership of the people of Israel. And that's a theme that you'll see throughout the remainder of the book. And at this point, he flees into Midian, and this is where several of the chapters take place. He flees to Midian, and, and while he's gone, the king of Egypt dies. And this is the next passage, ending in, in chapter 2. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And this is how chapter 2 ends. In the midst of what it feels like for Israel to be under such threat and oppression and even death at the hands of Egypt, their cries go up, and they're not unheard. Now, the text doesn't give us any indication of why now versus why not hundreds of years before this? But we now know that the cries go up and God hears their cries. Much of what's happening throughout this book and throughout the Old Testament is God hearing and remembering his covenant with the people of Israel. One of the words that we get a lot throughout the Old Testament is this word called hesed. And oftentimes you might hear it translated as steadfast love or something like that. But it's actually a covenantal love. And so God in his covenantal love is reminded and he is bounded to that contract with he and his people of Israel. And so he is reminded of them and his love for them. And then as the story unfolds, you'll see the drama of what happens as the people of Israel slowly come out of Egypt. Now, one of the challenging things about narratives is we might want to we might want to pull out something that we can apply for ourselves. There's many things throughout the story that jump out at us, but it, for whatever reason, this last part is the thing that stuck with me the most. This idea that as we cry out, like in our prayers to the people, we're crying out, we're petitioning God, that God will come to us and that God will respond. Walter Brueggemann, who's one of my favorite theologians, he talks about this in these last few verses. The witness of Exodus in the biblical narrative shows how the cry of human pain again and again provokes a response from someone in power to act to address that pain. This cry for justice cannot ultimately be defeated because it appeals to the transfer, transformative, emancipatory power of the creator, God. And what we'll have throughout the rest of this book is the constant liberation, the emancipation that God is bringing to the people of Israel. And it doesn't end there. It doesn't end with him just bringing them out of slavery, but rather it, it comes to a point where now he gives them ways that they can interact with him and ways that they can interact with one another. And so this is how the story begins. It's a story of God's people in slavery and oppression, but through acts of subversion and acts of petition and protest and prayer, God comes to them, he hears them, and gives them someone who is going to save them. I'm excited about this book. It is clear. It's not clear. I would just say it. it's not clear. It is confusing. There are some really bizarre stories throughout this book. 
but it's part of our scripture and it's part of our history and things that that need to be addressed within our walk and following the way of Jesus.